epic, epic intro to an epic series. Am I right? It's been so good. We have had five weeks in the Nehemiah series. Today is week six, and I am tasked with the responsibility of closing us out. We're gonna finish strong, okay, everybody? If you haven't had the chance to meet me, that means I haven't had the chance to meet you either. And my name is Jonathan Duke. I am the uh, Daphne campus pastor. And so I have the honor of getting into God's word with you today. And I am looking forward to it. So Pastor Chris is traveling and we wanna pray for him for safe travels and he enjoys a little downtime. But I am honored to have the privilege of going through Nehemiah chapter six with you this morning. Now to give you a little bit of backstory and to kind of tie all these puzzle pieces together, I wanna revisit some of the things we've talked about over the last few weeks, including this lovely shovel that I have with me. The shovel represents what Pastor Chris talked about in week one where there are some areas in our lives where we need to grab a shovel, stick it in the ground and get to work, right? We need to break ground on some areas of our lives that are in need of some work, right? And so for every person that looks a little bit different, every area of our lives, we need to make sure that we're doing what God would have us do. And so for each individual in this room, hopefully you felt called to be at work or to get to work on an area of your life. And then Nehemiah, we saw that beautiful picture of him seeing the horrible circumstances that existed in the city of Jerusalem and the fact that the walls of Jerusalem were in ruin. And seeing the walls or being being made aware that the walls were in ruin, he went to the king and asked the king's permission to go back and restore the walls of Jerusalem. He obeys that calling that God has placed on his life to deal with the walls of Jerusalem. So he goes back and he enlists the people of the community to start working on the wall. And you would imagine, like any other circumstance where you're trying to do what God has called you to do, opposition begins to find a way to work against what God is trying to do. So Nehemiah starts to face all of these different types of oppositions, all these different people who don't want the city walls rebuilt. And what we do see is that repeatedly, Nehemiah has to keep the people of God on task, keeping them obedient to God, following through with the work that God has assigned to them. Even at one point in Nehemiah chapter four, we see this beautiful picture of Nehemiah saying, work on the wall, but keep a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. And I love that. Like the man in me just goes, when I read that, right? A hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. That's how committed he wanted them to be to building the wall. And so here in Nehemiah chapter six, we're at the finish line. We're at the finale. The walls are being rebuilt and they're about to finish the project. They are in the home stretch. But as you can imagine, the opposition doesn't decide to go on vacation. If anything, they ramp up their efforts even more. And in Nehemiah chapter six, you'll see with me how when we are tasked with a job given to us by God, whether it be to work on our marriage or work on how we raise our kids or work on how we represent Christ in the workplace or work on any of these things that God has convicted you of and challenged you with over the past few weeks, what you'll see is that when we get close to a goal that God has put in front of us, the opposition wants to throw everything they have at us. In fact, you can write this down. When God gives us a job to do, It is important that we push all the way through the finish line. I have recently got into running back in COVID times, you know, when the world was shut down. I was one of those gentlemen that decided I needed to do something a little more physically active. And so I told my wife I was gonna start running. 
And she was laughing at me when I first introduced that idea to her. She was like, I don't know if you could make it to the mailbox. She's a very supportive, loving, encouraging wife, but she also likes to keep it real. You know what I'm saying? And so she was keeping it real with me. She's like, I haven't seen you do a whole lot of the running stuff. And I said, well, I'm gonna start. So I started running and I'm not one of those like superstar athletes by any stretch of the imagination, but I like to run. It turns out it's a good time to clear my head. I like to kind of get a pace going and cruise for a few miles. Again, not fast, but cruise for a few miles. And, uh, and, and I like to do a little 5K here or there to see, you know, how fast I can run for, for myself and all that kind of stuff. And what's interesting is doing that has taught me a lot about what a finish line looks like. Because you can't truly value a finish line until you're in the race. Because when you've got those miles, those miles adding up, and you are closing in on the finish line and you start to see that finish line, it is a feeling that you can't describe. Your body is so upset with you. I mean, your body is hurting. Your body is complaining. Your body is saying, why would you do such a thing? And that finish line just gets closer and closer and closer. And I started researching when I was reading, my, reading Nehemiah chapter six, and especially with Pastor Chris using some race illustrations in his message last week, I started kind of looking at it through the lens of a race. And I began to realize that a ton of footage I was seeing of these guys running races, when a guy took the lead and was out front, you really had two different types of responses. You had the guy who knew he was trying to set a personal record or maybe even a world record, and he is pushing all the way through the finish line. I mean, he sees the finish line, but he's like, I'm not pulling up at the last second. I'm going to run all the way through the finish line because I'm trying to get the best time I can possibly get. And then you got guys like this guy. I want you to see this clip real quick. Look at this guy from Oregon. He is like, I've got this thing won. I got time to celebrate with the, I just lost. <laughs> That's what happened. And look at his face, look at his face, bless him. He's like, what happened? Oh no. And uh, yeah, yeah, poor, listen, I, I was gonna do a lot of research and like give you context on what his name was and what year it was. And I was like, no, I'm not doing any of that to that guy, okay? I appreciate the footage. I could have pulled like 50 different videos of the exact same thing, believe it or not. You can go look it up, like people who celebrated a little too early. And what happens is when you celebrate too early or when you think you've got it one or you think you're good enough, you kind of pull up a little bit. You kind of don't put your best foot forward anymore. You're not pushing the limit anymore. In your mind, you begin to think, I've got this handled. And that's when we can be at our most dangerous. It's when our marriage is good enough. It's when our relationship with our kids is okay. It's when we're kind of sort of living like a Christ follower, but we're not fully committed to living like a Christ follower. It's when we grab the serve card in the seat in front of us, but we go, man, I'll fill it out later. It's when we have that mentality of, I'm gonna do some things in my life, but can I actually see this through to the end? Nehemiah gives us some powerful, powerful tools of what it looks like for us to see things through to the end. And as I began to read this and, and began to prepare for what God had in store for us, I couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 14, where the apostle Paul writes, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Love that line. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised 
by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Man, what is God's heavenly call that he's placed on your life? He has a heavenly calling he has placed on your life. And it's amazing when we kind of lose sight of that, how far off track we can get from what God desires for us. I met with a a group of students uh, last weekend for Flex and Primal for the Daphne campus. And when I met with those students, it was so neat to have conversations with them about leading their friends to Christ. And these guys came out of there and they were locked in and they were ready to go tell their friends about Jesus. And I was like, man, I can remember being like that. I remember being a high school student and going into college thinking I can save everybody by introducing them to Jesus, right? Not that I can save them, but God's gonna save them, right? And if I just introduce them to Jesus, so I wanted to win every person I came in contact with, I wanted to win them with the gospel for the glory of God. And then something happens to you and you just kind of get bleh as an adult, right? We start thinking, well, maybe that person won't listen or maybe that person doesn't want me to talk to them about Jesus or maybe I shouldn't invite that person to church because it might get weird, you know? And we start coming up with all these weird excuses that we make up in our own head and the teenager's like, brah, I'm gonna lead everybody to Jesus. And I'm like, man, I missed that. I want some more of that back in my life and in my walk with Christ. I want to know that there is a goal, a heavenly call that God has placed on my life and I want to push through till I get to the finish line on whatever it is that God has tasked me with. But something I mentioned earlier that I want you to write down in your notes is when the end is near, the opposition throws everything they have at you. When the end is near, when that goal is near, the enemy throws everything they have at you. The year 2017 is incredibly important to me, especially early in that year. February of 2017, my son was born, my firstborn. Love him dearly, and I remember that whole pregnancy, just the anticipation building, but that year is also special because a team that I began to love during my time of living just outside of Atlanta, they went to the Super Bowl. The Atlanta Falcons made it to the Super Bowl in 2017. I remember that because my wife was incredibly pregnant with our son who was beyond his due date, and we went to a Super Bowl party with our small group at the church we were at at the time. And at that Super Bowl party, my wife, who knows nothing about football, knew something incredible was happening. The Falcons were winning. Not just winning, we were dominating. 28 to three, folks, 28 to three, late in the third quarter, the Falcons are leading the Super Bowl and everybody in that area of Georgia is thinking along with the rest of the state of Georgia, our time has finally arrived. Here it is, we're gonna win the Super Bowl. And I was thinking to myself, man, maybe the excitement of this night will cause my wife to go into labor and my son will be born on the night that the Falcons win the Super Bowl. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And I'm just fired up and I'm excited and I'm looking forward to it. And then stinking Tom Brady. Stinking Tom Brady who still played for the stinking Patriots does what Tom Brady does in Super Bowls, or at least most of them. Brings them back from one of the largest deficits in Super Bowl history. And they come back to beat my beloved Falcons in overtime. And I realized that in that last quarter of that ball game, they pulled out all the stops. It was the last quarter in the last game of the season and they were in the Super Bowl. Of course, they're gonna throw everything they had at the Falcons, and it worked. Side note, my kid wasn't born that night, and I'm thankful because now I don't have a marker of that devastating loss. (laughs) I'm very thankful he was born just a few days later. 
But it's so important for me, even as I began to think about that, how devastating it was that your team lost because the opposition pulled out all the stops and we couldn't finish and achieve the goal that was in front of us. Nehemiah chapter six gives us, gives a, excuse me, gives us such a powerful picture of what that looks like if we're not careful. First thing Nehemiah was good at, and I want you to write this down, Nehemiah knew that letting ungodly people take him away from God's work would be a major letdown. So the first thing he was very aware of is that letting ungodly people take him away from God's work would be a major letdown. Look at Nehemiah chapter six, verses one through three with me. He says, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors and the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Now, give you some context here. The Ono Valley is geographically lower elevation than the city of Jerusalem. It was called a valley for a reason. Nehemiah would have had to physically gone down to the city in order to be in the Ono Valley. Now, Ono Valley, if I get invited somewhere to have a conversation with a bunch of people that don't like me, Ono Valley is probably not the place that I wanna get an invite to. Now, there's a joke there. Pastor Chris would have referenced it. I'm not going to. Shows my maturity in this situation, right? (laughs) But the Ono Valley is not a place where you wanna go have a conversation with your enemy. I don't care who you are. The Ono Valley is not where you wanna go because it's geographically lower. He would have had to leave the work site. He would have had to stoop down to the level of a bunch of people that didn't want God's work to happen in the first place. And he would have had to lower himself to the standard set by other people. Sounds like a problem you and I face on a regular basis. God's calling is high in our life. God's calling should be priority in our life. God's calling should set, God's calling should set the standard and the goal for our lives. But we have to be careful because there's plenty of people around us that want us to step off of that calling and to lower our standards. I mean, how many times do we see it happen where a person gets on fire for God, begins to share Christ, begins to live and set an example, begins to try to fix their home and fix their marriage and do the things that God has called us to do. And all of a sudden, all of their friends who don't get it and don't understand are like, can you just be normal? Can you just be normal about your faith? Like go to church and read your Bible. It's fine, just don't talk to me about it. Like I don't need you to be that level of of Christian. Can you just be like this level of Christian? And they kind of, you know, bargain with us and try to negotiate us coming down off of what God has for us. So the first thing I want you to think about in your mind this morning is what area of your life is that area where you need to refuse to let yourself lower your standard? Where is that? And that's just a mental note for you to think of this morning as we go through this text and begin to see all of the opposition and all the efforts that the opposition throws at Nehemiah. What are they gonna do to get him off of what God wants him to do. The next thing you write down is this, when distraction doesn't work, the enemy resorts to causing fear and foolishness among God's people. When distraction, which is the first effort, doesn't work, and Pastor Chris talked about that a few weeks ago, how can we lose focus on the work that God has in front of us? Well, distraction didn't work, and they've tried it numerous times. They couldn't get him to get off the job site to go down to the Ono Valley, 
They couldn't get him to get caught up in a conversation with them so that he would stop working on the wall and stop leading people to work on the wall. So what do they do now? Well, it's time to create a little bit of fear and to create a whole lot of foolishness. So here's how they go about doing that. Look at Nehemiah chapter six, verses four through nine. Nehemiah writes that four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. This is the invite down to Ono. And in verse five, it says, Sanballat sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you're building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king. So come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind for they were all trying to intimidate us saying, they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. Man, I couldn't distract Nehemiah, but maybe I can scare him and maybe I can induce some foolishness. Now, what does foolishness look like? If you'll notice at the beginning of verse four, Nehemiah says that they sent me the same request four times, a proposal to come meet at the Ono Valley. They sent it four times and it was in a closed letter form those four times. The fifth time, they got tricky. The fifth time they sent an open letter. Now, why is that significant? Because in this era of communication where you didn't have cell phones or text messages or email or anything like that, the way you communicated from high authority to high authority was through a sealed letter. It would be sealed with the signet ring of the king or the high ranking official, and it would only be unsealed by the person who was to receive the letter on the end, right? And so they have this way of messaging that is a closed, sealed letter. But what happens is the fifth time, Nehemiah's opposition gets clever. And they said, you know what? This time we're gonna send an open letter and we're gonna make all these accusations in the open letter. We're gonna accuse Nehemiah of wanting to become king. We're gonna accuse Nehemiah of wanting to overthrow the king and, and instill a rebellion. We're gonna basically create all this rumor that exists in this open letter. And an open letter was important because they could literally show it to any person they came in contact with. So the messenger, instead of keeping it protected and sealed until it made it to the recipient, was able to say, hey, you wanna read this? Go ahead, it's an open letter. So all along the way of traveling to be to where Nehemiah is, he could stop anywhere he chose and show that letter to anyone he chose. And as a result, gossip begins to spread. Drama begins to spread. Misinformation begins to spread. And a mess is created. That's what an open letter signifies in this story. That open letter was instilled to create drama, gossip, and messiness. Don't we see this happen in our world today? Man, don't worry about facts. Facts slow things down. Let's just throw in a good little story and rumor and gossip and mess and see what happens. It's amazing to me. All you gotta do is hop on social media for about a nanosecond and you can go, I can form a whole thought about someone and know no facts on them whatsoever, right? And that's what happens in this open letter that Nehemiah is receiving from his opposition. And here's the threat. The threat is that a rumor has been heard that you wanna be king and that rumor is going to be heard by the king. They're saying this news, this information, this gossip, 
It's gonna get back to the king. And what do you think he's gonna think about it? Now, Nehemiah is not bothered by this at all. Why? Because if you remember in Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah had the conversation with the king that gave him permission to do the work in the first place. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. He doesn't have to worry about what rumor makes it to the king. He knows the king directly and can communicate with the king directly. So he's like, start all the rumors you want. I don't even need to be bothered by this. But his opposition has no choice but to try to make Nehemiah afraid of the king, afraid of opposition to a rumored rebellion, afraid for his life, and ultimately consumed by foolishness of a whole bunch of people who have heard this rumor and now want to stop what Nehemiah has been trying to do on God's behalf by getting him so scared that he moves off the job site and instead is so focused and consumed with the rumors and the threats and the tactics of intimidation. In fact, Nehemiah says in verse nine, for they were all trying to intimidate us. That was their purpose, that was their goal. He said, they wanted me to drop my hands from the work and in their minds, they were thinking it'll never be finished. I love this, write this down. Nehemiah didn't waste unnecessary time or energy on anything that would hinder God's work. Now, he did use some time and some energy. He was willing to inform people, educate people, bring people along. The people of God in the city of Jerusalem, they had to be constantly taught and informed and, and given vision on what God was gonna have them do. So Nehemiah was not like, hey, y'all better just get on board or I'm gonna run you over with the bus of what God's doing. He was like, if you're people of God and you desire to do the work of God, then I want you on, on the same page with me and we're gonna do God's work together. He was willing to do that. But when he knew someone was in full opposition to God's work, when someone was ungodly and someone had no desire to see God's work being accomplished, he was not going to waste unnecessary time or energy trying to win those people over, right? Sometimes you just gotta put your head down and keep the work going. Look at this in verse eight. Uh, going back, look at, the, look at the scripture right above that statement. It says in verse eight, then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. That's it, that's all he said. He didn't go down to Ono Valley and try to negotiate with them. He didn't send a bunch of messages back. He sent one line statement. There's nothing to these rumors. I'm not wasting my time with a bunch of people that are trying to get me to lower myself from what God has for me. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna waste time arguing. I'm not gonna waste time debating. There's nothing to these rumors that you are spreading. It's all made up in your head. That's his reply that he gives to his opposition. Nehemiah was not gonna waste unnecessary time or energy on anything that would hinder what God is trying to do. Another thing that you'll see is that Nehemiah knew he needed God's strength in order to finish well. He knew he needed God's strength in order to finish well. So he's there, he sees the finish line coming, he sees the goal at hand, the walls are almost built. He says, I just haven't put the gates in place yet. We're, I mean, we're so close to the finish line and the opposition is cranking up, man. They are throwing everything they have at us. They're threatening me, they're spreading rumors, they're trying to get me off the job site, they're doing all these different things and Nehemiah's like, man, I just need to take a one second and I need to pray right now. And here's what he prays, and it's a powerful prayer that shows up in Nehemiah 6, 9, but it's just one simple line. He says, but now, my God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. As I was doing a little bit of digging into what that statement meant, I want you to imagine with me for a moment 
that all these oppositions that we've talked about over the past several weeks that are trying to get Nehemiah to stop doing what God told him to do in the first place, he's dealt with all those in an impressive way. We would say, man, he's got strong hands. He has stayed at work. He even told those men at one point in time, grab the hammer and the sword. I don't care what you gotta do. You stay on the wall. You keep working. Don't lose focus. Don't lose passion. Don't lose commitment. He has stayed true to all of it. And I would say, man, Nehemiah, you are faithful. You are the goal. You are the standard for a guy like me. I see what you're doing and I want to live up to that standard. And Nehemiah in his mind is going, man, I've seen so much opposition. But how much opposition is out there that I don't even know about? How, how many things are at work right now trying to derail us from doing what God would have us do? H- how many things are taking place at this moment that I'm not even in the loop on that are trying to either destroy me or ruin me? See, I know that you in your life at some point in time have had God show up in a major way and he has come through for you and protecting you from something or answering a prayer that was something you desperately needed or God has shown up in some way that is tangible and real and you have seen God's hand at work in your life. I know that because every single person who is here today has something that God has done in your life. And I can remember praying some hard prayers, y'all, where I'm like, God, I need you to show up. I need you to help me out. I need you to protect me from this. But as I began to read just this one simple line, I couldn't help but think of how many things God had spared me from that I wasn't even aware of. How many times God protected me from something that wanted to blindside me out of nowhere and he was there stopping it the entire time. How many times God was protecting my safety or how many times God was looking out for me and I wasn't even aware of how he was intervening. See, that's the power of prayer. That's the power of a God who is sovereign and fully in control. He helps us not only with the opposition we can see, he helps us with the opposition we're not even aware of. And so I wanna encourage you, just like Nehemiah prayed, God, strengthen my hands. When you think about where God has called you to grab the shovel and get to work, you also need to be praying, God, strengthen my hands because I'm gonna run into some stuff that I don't even know about yet that's gonna try to derail this whole thing. I'm gonna run into some stuff that's gonna stop me. I'm gonna run into some stuff that's gonna cause me to doubt myself. I'm gonna run into some stuff that's gonna lead me astray from the will that you have for me, but God, I need you to strengthen my hands for that moment. See, that's what Nehemiah was willing to pray. God, strengthen my hands for what's coming, the things that I know about and the things that I am not yet aware of. Nehemiah knew that he needed to pray for God's strength and he needed that strength in order to finish well. But one other thing that the enemy can throw at us that may be the most powerful weapon of all shows up at the end of Nehemiah chapter six. And here's what I would say to you as a point you can write down in your notes. The temptation of safety and security can also lure us away from God's work. The temptation of safety and security can also lure us off of what God would have for us. Sometimes we wanna be safe. Sometimes we want everything to be fine. Sometimes we want everything to be okay. Sometimes we wanna keep the peace, whatever it is that you've labeled it. Sometimes we have these ideas in our head that are like, hey, we've gotten good enough. Let's just stop at good, excuse me, good enough. And I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter six, verses 10 through 13. And he says this, he says, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. In fact, they're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? 
How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him. Because of the prophecy he spoke against me, Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. So the last kind of Hail Mary tactic that they're throwing in this opposition to Nehemiah and the work of rebuilding the wall is they're like, we want Nehemiah to be scared literally to death, fearing loss of life. And if we get him to that point, maybe we can convince him to go to the temple to seek refuge and safety. So they hire a prophet, or at least someone who bore that label, and they talk the prophet into pitching that to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, your life is at risk. Tonight, they're gonna come to kill you. Meet me at the temple. I'll protect you by locking the doors to the temple. It's the safest place we have. But in Nehemiah's mind, he knows that's a huge problem because it would contradict the law of God in order for him to go into the temple. See, he was not qualified to enter the Holy of Holies, the temple itself in the presence of God. He was not qualified in any definition given to us in Levitical law that made it okay for Nehemiah to go into the temple. So the tactic is an effort to pursue safety and security. Will you contradict God's law in order to stay safe and secure? And I know you're like, well, that's a big deal. Like he knew he couldn't go in the temple. That's easy. Uh, he, he obviously understood scripture. Let me ask you, church, do you know scripture well enough that you know when the world is trying to lead you astray from God's word? Because that is vitally important for us to have that truth as the foundation of who we are as people, is we have to have the foundation of God's truth so that we aren't swayed every which way by some new idea or some new tactic or some Instagram post or some social media person or some self-help guru comes out with some new info and all of a sudden we're like, whoa, that sounds big. Maybe I should follow that, even if it's in total contradiction to God's word. That's why we have to equip ourselves with God's word. Just because something is safer, that doesn't mean it's God's will. Just because it's safe and secure, that does not mean it is God's will. One thing that is obvious if you read the New Testament is every follower of Jesus, every apostle of Christ was prepared to suffer for the gospel, not go on vacation because of the gospel not live a life of luxury because of the gospel, not be comfortable every single day because of the gospel, but they were willing to suffer and even die to further the gospel because they knew that suffering actually meant that they were probably being the most obedient to Christ that they could possibly be because Jesus suffered, set in the example of what a true follower of Christ looks like. Safety isn't always the key to letting us know that something is God's will. But we also need to make sure that we know God's word enough to know when we are being led astray, led away from it. So you see all the tactics of the opposition and how it all shows up in our lives too. In all these different ways, the opposition that exists in our worlds, your enemies that are at work right now, both seen and unseen, use these same tactics with us each and every day. And we see in Nehemiah's example that he stayed committed to that wall in spite of all the opposition. He wasn't distracted, he wasn't scared, he didn't go disobey God's word in the pursuit of safety. He was willing to do everything that God called him to do and to see it through beyond the finish. 
And what was the result? Well, I want you to write this down. With God's help, Nehemiah was able to push through to a finish that brought all the glory to God. He was willing to push through to a finish that brought all the glory to God. Nehemiah 6 verses 15 and 16 said, the wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. When all of our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. He stayed committed to such a degree that all the opposition and all the enemies took note and realized Nehemiah and the people of God have done something on God's behalf that only God can do. So church, I want you to think with me this morning and I want you to begin to pray about what area of your life is that area where God told you to grab the shovel, but where Nehemiah would warn us, don't loosen your grip and don't put that shovel down just yet because you're not quite there yet. And I wanna be clear, we don't believe in a works-based faith where you gotta be good enough to earn a spot into heaven. We do this because we are promised heaven and we get to live from that, not in pursuit of that. And so when I think to myself, hey, I'm an okay husband. I wanna be a great husband. I'm an okay dad. I wanna lead my kids to love Jesus. Man, I can't tell you, I, that's one of the most passionate things in my life. I want two boys that I, God has blessed me with to grow up to love Jesus fiercely. And I'm working towards that each and every day. And I'm not good at it, I'll be honest with you. But I'm working towards it. I love being on staff with Three Circle Church, but I don't wanna just say I'm a staff member that does okay at Three Circle Church. I wanna be a pastor who loves and serves and does it faithfully. I don't wanna settle for where I am in my relationship with Christ and I don't wanna settle for less. I wanna grab that shovel and I wanna keep working. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning and just ask God, Lord, where is it? Where is it in my life where I need to be careful? Where I need to make sure I've got a tight grip on that shovel? Where I need to keep my head down and push through to the finish line? God, where is it? Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us by showing us what that area is of our lives where we need to push through to the finish. Lord, we know the finish line may be when our lives come to an end here or when Jesus returns. That's the finish line for some of these things that you have tasked us with in this life. And God, we wanna stay faithful through that finish line too. But God, I pray that you would help reveal to us where we need to make sure we tighten our grip on that shovel and keep putting in the work. God, I ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.